Welcome. You're listening to the Vital and Thriving Podcast for Congregations Building Beloved Community. I'm Scott Sherman. And I'm Claire Dietrich Rana. We're two freewheeling, fun-loving, kind of ridiculous Episcopal priests. Speak for yourself. Serving the people of God and God's church here in the Bay Area. While supporting each other and you in noticing and responding to the movements of the Spirit in this unique moment we find ourselves in. So yes, welcome and welcome back. Today is a very exciting episode because we're welcoming our very own bishop to the podcast. Although in a sense, I think we could say that he has welcomed us into this conversation too. Oh, that's right, Claire. You know, Vital and Thriving is a collaborative partnership between uh, the center that I lead, Newbigin House, and the Diocese of California. And most of the work is being funded by the Expanding Horizons Capital Campaign. You know, the shape of this initiative comes from uh, Bishop Mark's leadership and really from some deep, deep spiritual work uh, done by hundreds and hundreds of people in this diocese, uh, visioning beloved community, as well as discerning and identifying practices of congregations that are really vital and thriving. Mm -hmm. So without further ado, we're delighted to welcome the Right Reverend Dr. Mark Handley Andrus, 8th Bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of California. Bishop Mark began his ministry among us in 2006 after serving as the Bishop Suffragan in the Episcopal Diocese of Alabama. He leads the Episcopal Church's delegation to the annual UN Climate Conference and has been an outspoken advocate for the civil rights of those identifying as LGBTQ+, immigration reform, and healthcare. His first book, Brothers in the Beloved Community, The Friendship of Thich Nhat Hanh and Martin Luther King Jr., was published in 2021. Scott, you take over so that I can catch my breath here. <laughs> yes, that is that is an exhaustive introduction. Uh, but welcome, Bishop Mark. We are really delighted to have you on the Vital and Thriving podcast. I'm really delighted to be with both you, Scott, and you, Claire. It's great to I see and hear you both. <laughs> well, so we've been working together now for a while to shape Vital and Thriving. And, you know... The, the last two years have been incredibly disruptive, but it's also true that the life and structure of the church in North America, I mean, it's been changing for quite some time now. I wonder if you could share with us just a bit about how you see this initiative meeting the needs of the church in the Bay Area at this particular moment in time. Mm. That was such a good question. Um, what the... What the church needs today in the Bay Area is what it always needs at all times, which is to attend to the movement of Jesus Christ in the moment. And that, I believe, is what we're really trying to equip the congregations of the uh, Episcopal Church in the Bay Area, Diocese of California, to do. What we believe is that um, Jesus is moving with the needs of the earth, uh, the needs of people. And in order to move with Jesus, we need to be uh, able to move out of our own sense of stasis, our own sense of um, 
what are we called sometimes the frozen chosen well so, <laughs> so the idea of frozenness um you know that that's always a problem i i don't know claire your children is uh, is frozen a, a favorite film oh yes We've yeah. seen it hundreds of times. <laughs> so, you know, the state of being frozen in that film is is part of the problem, right? People need to be released mm -hmm. from uh, some sense, which is a false sense of it, it seems like security, uh, so that we we know where we are, things are predictable, uh, the past is known, the present is being secured, and thus the future. Will be secured, and this is uh, this is a false view of reality. So we kind of got to break into uh, being unfrozen, <laughs> and mm -hmm. so these practices that we are developing are ways to be responsive to the urgencies of the moment. Uh, to, let, to let it go, as it were. Yeah, to let it no, go. <laughs> yes. I apologize for that. Well, no, you can break. You can do that musically if you wish. Like break into song. Uh, most little children I know, when you give them that cue, they just break right into it. I I love how your response just like echoes, you know, the movements of nature and the earth, which are like never still. You just really never still. That. Yeah, yeah. there are no so apparently no straight lines in nature and there's no frozen moment in nature. It's all Heraclitus, the pre-Socratic uh, philosopher, said uh, everything flows. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So we talked a lot in our first episode about how so many aspects of the life of the church have changed over the last two years. Right. How do you think the pandemic impacts the work that you're inviting congregations into? One really striking thing that I observed uh, during the pandemic when all of our congregations, uh, yours, Claire, included so beautifully, they all moved quickly to this, um, not only to a virtual platform where people could join, but they also started making offerings on those virtual um, platforms that allowed people to take part in in not just Sunday services, but Bible studies and uh, all kinds of um, um, spiritual practices that people could do other times of the day, too. And I found that really striking. Suddenly, here's the thing about uh, collaboration. We found that people were attending each other's Bible studies and each other's centering prayer groups and um suddenly people were in each other's spaces uh, of churches and they were happy to be doing so and they, they weren't view, viewing each other as competition. They didn't have to drive across the Bay Area to get there. And so collaboration suddenly became this um, easy kind of um, experience for people. Yeah. So Bishop Mark, you, uh, there's a term beloved community uh, that you use a lot in your ministry as bishop. Uh, and now you've actually written a book about it. I'm wondering if you could, as we're thinking about unlocking the capacity of congregations to build beloved community, maybe you could just say, in your view, just define what is beloved community. Um, the beloved community is a realm that includes all of life, and it is a realm at peace, uh, so that 
um, what would it take for all of life to be at peace with each other in your own view? Like a genuine question for us right now. Yeah. Yeah. A genuine question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what are the conditions for peace? Mm. Yeah. Safety. Okay, good. What, what makes us safe with each other? Respect, curiosity, yes. yeah, yeah, delight. Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's start with respect. Uh, that's a big one. So in the beloved community, uh, there, there are no objects. There are only subjects. So everyone is a subject. Um, it, Martin Buber put it, um, we, it's no, no eyes and it's, it's I and thou. Uh, so, yeah. so to be at peace, we've got to stand on the same level with each other. There's nobody dominating and nobody being dominated. Uh, so mutual respect, Claire, is a, is a big starting condition for the beloved community. So to be at peace, uh, we need to be standing on, on level ground with each other and looking each other, at each other as equal subjects. A, Meaning, mm. where we have agency, uh, we can pursue our authentic needs and have them respected by other people, and these are conditions for respect. Um, and the conditions for peace flow from that. That's such a different posture for the church. Uh, the colonizing church comes in with all the answers, and uh, it's very it's very different right. when you right. So we've been patterned in mutuality. Yes. So we've been patterned as human beings for about 10,000 years to accept the idea of, uh, of people who dominate and people who are dominated, that that's just the natural order of things. Um, and so to, to move into a realm where we believe that that is not reality, but rather is a distortion that we've accepted as reality is uh, it's revolutionary. Right. You were talking about the movement of Jesus earlier, and it it that this has this really is the the reign of God that Jesus was talking about. Um, one of the things that you write in the book, uh, I think both Dr. King and Tick Not On say that it's God who builds beloved community. Right. So, in, the, in a certain sense, we're talking about building. But could you say a little bit about that that idea? Yeah, it's a it, it language is pretty imprecise uh, around this. Um, I talk about repairing the beloved community, building the beloved community, and that that is true um, because what we're building is, could I say, our own consciousness, so that we can see the beloved community. But it, it would be misleading for me to suggest that we actually build the beloved community. It. God makes the beloved community and we um, move out of our distortions so that we can experience it and receive it. So Jesus, you know, went around the Galilee at the beginning of his ministry preaching one message. The beloved community has come near. So if you take, you know, kingdom of God and translate it into beloved community, this is what Jesus is main and enduring message was, is that the beloved community has come near. Not that we have come near to the beloved community, but it has come near to us. So that's, a, that's grace, isn't it? It's, it's a gift. Um, and I guess I need to 
put myself in a posture where I can receive a gift. Mm-hmm. You know, like when you give somebody a compliment or when you receive a compliment and we say, no, 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 not me, you know, like that. Well, I, I'm kind of not able to receive at that moment. Uh, so there is something for me to do. There is there is something for me to do. It's not mm-hmm. passive, but but thankfully, we're not required to create the beloved community. Rather, we create the conditions for seeing the community beloved community and receiving the beloved community. Vital and Thriving is deeply informed by five vitality practices you've helped to identify and articulate across the diocese. Invitation, community embeddedness, diversity, collaboration, and sustainability. Before we dive into each one, could you tell us how you and others first came upon these practices? Well, it's uh, really kind of like being a naturalist. Um, observation. <laughs> um, I looked yeah. at I looked at com- congregations that were alive and um, and joyful and uh, growing, growing in depth, growing in service, growing in numbers. Uh, and I I tried to see what was going on, wh- what made these work, and those uh, practices emerged from that observation. We'd actually like to read the description you crafted um, then to describe a vision for vital congregations, because they're just so spot on, I think, for the moment we find ourselves in. Church vitality requires moving from maintaining our established and set structures to creating communities that are growing and thriving. Growing based solely on numbers is hardly an indication of vitality. When churches are vital, they are places that grow members' spirituality as they work to be disciples of Jesus. Vital churches are also those that engage not only themselves, but make a difference in their surrounding community. Church vitality in the beloved community needs the community to be vital. It encourages evangelism, growth, and new expressions of church, and adopts missional practices of worship and outreach. Vital churches collaborate between one another and express creativity and joy in the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this is so much deeper than quote-unquote church growth. It seems like the focus really is on the community that the church is called to serve. Is that right? Mm. Oh, I I love that, Claire. Um, Well, that's a a beautiful posture, isn't it? Um, Mm. I hadn't put it that way, but I think that's exactly right. We, we lose ourselves in love for, for those we serve. And, uh, so we kind of forget about our own needs. I don't mean to the exclusion of, of what's necessary for life, but, um, our wants, let's put it that way, fade and the need of that one, those beings, that community that we're serving, they become, they loom larger in our, in our minds, and our hearts. So I think that you're exactly right. It's a, it's a, it's a refocusing of our attention. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So with Vital and Thriving, we're going to be providing uh, resources for congregations to explore and go deeper in these practices 
as well as a pretty serious process of collective discernment uh, in which there'll be an even deeper dive into these practices. But let's talk about them in detail. Let, let's start. Let's just start with invitation. What do you mean by practices of invitation? Well, I, I use the word in two deliberately in two ways for, for two reasons. One, I don't want to use uh, being uh, evangelical, evangelism. Uh, mm-hmm. In the Episcopal Church, there's just too much energy to waste <laughs> in trying to explain why evangelism, evangelism is okay. <laughs> to Episcopalians, um, <laughs> uh, so yeah. I just I just did away with it. And um, invitation is something we do like. We like to issue invitations. Uh, what a joy it is to invite people to a gathering like Jesus did a dinner. Uh, we mm-hmm. actually love planning those dinner. Oh, it can be you know a little intimidating and and tiring and. Uh, we may take on the too many new recipes or, you know, I don't know, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's a deep joy to be able to invite people to share a meal with us. And so inviting, we like that. We also like to be invited. It's, it's a real um, thrill for somebody we love to invite us into their home or to some occasion that's meaningful to them. Uh, yeah. These are the conditions for creating community. So invitation seems like something uh, we can really embrace and, and we don't have to waste time explaining what it's not and why it's okay. Also, it distinguishes itself from welcoming. So there were all those Episcopal Church um, signs that went up in the 80s. Uh, so the Episcopal Church welcomes you. And what our presiding bishop, uh, former presiding bishop Frank Griswold said once is that we've got to get away from an Episcopal Church that for whom uh, painting the doors red is um, a sufficient form of invitation. <laughs> so that only the people who recognize that know to come in, right? Well, that's yeah. that's a poor kind of invitation. But then we say we're welcoming. Uh, but how welcoming are we, uh, really? Uh, and I, there's a priest here in this diocese who, who was on sabbatical and went to, I think, a dozen other Episcopal congregations without having a clerical garb on, no collar, no black shirt. And uh, only at um, three of those did anybody come and speak to him during the coffee hour. (laughs) But all of those, all of those churches genuinely feel that they are welcoming churches. So what's going on? Well, they see each other and they're very happy to see each other after the kind of, you know, busy, maybe demanding uh, weeks that they have, and they, you know, fall into each other's arms in joy, and they welcome each other. Um, And I completely understand that. Um, But invitation is the prelude to to welcome. It's, It's actually saying, I, I need you. How about that? Not just I want you in the community. We, and we would permit you to come into the community. Not, not at all. We actually need you to join forces with us for the good that God is calling us to do. That's an invitation. Um, and uh, so I think this, we need to understand that invitation is 
absolutely essential if we're going to be uh, a broader community than the people who are already already um, have found their way into our circle. Hearing you talk about this, it, uh, the thing that was coming to mind was uh, Jesus commissioning uh, and sending the disciples out in in Luke ten. And that extraordinary thing, when he sends them out, he says, eat what is set before you, all right? That, that it implies that there is that there is mutuality and hospitality, that that's, that was kind of baked in from the beginning. It's that's a great like we've, connection. We, we've lost something that yeah. was there. I, I really like that. Mm. Um, yeah. So another, another pra- set of practices you talk about are community embeddedness. <laughs> Yeah, so that I made that word up. Uh, I get a red line under it in Word every time I use it. I, I know I, I had to accept it so that it would stop. It would stop doing that. It's, it's now in my dictionary. Uh, yeah, I did too. Make some new rules. Um, so, to community embeddedness means uh, that we really learn who our neighbors are, and that we start to work with them as they are. Right, not for the purposes of um, enlisting them necessarily, but becoming becoming their neighbor as well. Uh, so what would that look like? Uh, in the early days of these practices, we had numbers of churches. Uh, there was an instance of it here in San Francisco where six different congregations met in, in the neighborhood of one, in the building, in the church building. And they went out from there and they actually uh, went around to different businesses and nonprofits in the in the neighborhood and they introduced themselves. Um, they even knocked on doors, the, a very evangelical kind of thing. And they said, um, this is who we are. We're, we're these Episcopal congregations. We There's one that's right here in your community, in your neighborhood. And we're introducing ourselves. But we'd also like to know about you. Uh, what what is it that you do? What are the things that matter to you? And then the third question was, what do you know about us? <laughs> and um, and then the fourth question was, um, what do you need from us? Uh, yeah. So that was a, a process of mapping. Yeah. The neighborhood. Exactly. That kind of ethnography is actually going to be one of the key. Uh, practices we introduce into the process with Violent Thriving. I, I think that's essential. I do too. And then from there, you can really become embedded in, in your neighborhood. You're, you're not a, um, a fortress that's set down, that's inhabited by people who drive there. We just drive there on, the, on one day, a couple of hours on a Sunday, and then go back to our homes. We, we become a living part of that community. So that's embeddedness. Mm. Um, so another vitality practice is diversity. I imagine that what we mean by that has actually evolved and changed quite a bit in your time mm-hmm. as bishop. Um, so I'm curious about what that looks like when it's being lived out. Well, our first definition for it, Claire, was to say that um, diversity needed to be locally understood. So that um, you would seek to have the people inside the church building reflect the diversity of the community in which the church is located. Very simple kind of idea. Um, Now, I think I I like that you you have put your finger on the evolving consciousness. Mine, too. For instance, I have come to understand how 
blind I've been to the indigenous communities in the Bay Area or the lack thereof. So when I got here and we had a, a multicultural circle, as it was called, that was comprised of the various communities that would comprise uh, Latino, Latina. And we had an Asian group that, you know, that's the various groups, uh, Tongan and Filipino and Japanese Americans and Chinese Americans, right? You know, the, all that. Um, so we had all these groups. Uh, there was no indigenous group uh, per se, not not North American indigenous. What I did come to realize years ago was that under the heading of Latino Latina, uh, we had lots of people, maybe even close to a majority, who might identify with a, a Central or South American or Mexican indigenous group. And their first language might not be Spanish, but it might be a tribal language. So I started urging the Episcopal Church to think about these as displaced indigenous people so that our ministries with with indigenous people would include not just North American, um, U.S. Uh, indigenous communities, but Guatemalan and Mexican as well and so on. Um, so my consciousness has been evolving uh, with with this uh, area and uh, diversity does look very different after Black Lives Matter to me. Uh, I've, I've, there's ongoing learning uh, for me uh, in the, in this area. It's very important to us in the Bay Area. Uh, also, I would say that our ideas about diversity have always been more more nuanced than some parts of the United States where it is a very important dyad of white and black, but that's not the only measures of diversity. So we're really trying to hold um, a respectful, attentive consciousness that sees these various kinds of diversity, including LGBTQ and gender. Uh, as yeah. as part of our understanding of what is diversity. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. You know, a, a question that seems sort of related to this around vital and thriving. Um, I'm not sure how the, the pilot cohort was exactly put together of the congregations um, mm-hmm. that are moving through this first, but it seems like there was an effort to have kind of a diverse representation of the congregations yeah. um, in that group, different geographies, different sizes. Um, mm-hmm. And I wonder for those who are listening um, who maybe aren't in that pilot cohort and are curious if if they're going to have an opportunity to move through Vital and Thriving, is the intention that every congregation will um, be able to experience this and, and dig deeper through this initiative? Yeah, so you've got two things there, right? Like, how'd mm-hmm. that first group get selected? <laughs> and mm-hmm. you've already put your finger on it. We were looking, but why did we want a diverse group uh, in terms of the, mm-hmm. the different regions of the diocese and the different kind of sizes of congregations? We wanted every congregation to be able to see that this is for them. Uh, we, You know, in other words, if it were only any category, right? If it were only the small urban congregation would the large suburban congregations say say this is see that this is for them they might say oh this is for the small struggling congregation that's not for us uh, but 
Conversely, if it's for the large suburban congregation, I, I think it would be very likely that our smaller, less resourced congregations would say, well, that that's easy for them. That's for them. The, the rich get richer. <laughs> but yeah. this is not for us. Uh, so we really wanted everyone to find themselves represented in this cohort so they could say, this may be for me. This may be for us. Um, yes, uh, there will be at least two more um, cohorts formed, and each of those will be about the same size as this uh, startup cohort. So, you know, 12-ish. Um, and uh, that that's a lot of congregations when all three have run through this. Uh, you know, that's close to 40, 40 congregations. Um, would we stop there? Well, obviously not. Um, if if um, if the spirit has um, quickened the hearts of um, every congregation in this diocese, we'll we'll make sure that the resources are given to them and that we'll form them into yet yeah. new cohorts. Um, so this is this will be available to every congregation in the diocese of California. Great, that's awesome to hear. Um, so before I invite you to to talk a little bit about collaboration. I just wanted to preface this by sharing something that Pat, our first guest, said last week. He mentioned that congregations uh, learn best from other congregations. Mm -hmm. And then he swiftly said, um, and the research shows that congregations don't like learning from each other. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I know there are many different kinds of collaborations. So I'm sure there's, you know, a lot to, to dig into there, but, um, that was very striking from our first episode. Very striking. So yeah. What does co collaboration as a vitality practice look like? Yeah. Tough. <laughs> um, it's it's a tough one. Um, I, Pat's very right. Um, there is only one theorem in um, rural sociology, meaning that it's risen to the level not just of a hypothesis but a theorem, and that is this: farmers talk to farmers with effect. In other words, farmers listen to each other. And the, the reason this emerged was way back when uh, hybrid corn was being introduced. And they, the uh, soil conservation, the, all, all the uh, people representing the federal um, agricultural um, extension services, they were trying to convince farmers to use the hybrid corn and nobody would do it. So they went around uh, and found one farmer in each community who was really trusted and they worked carefully with that person and said will you just give this a try and once they did then that farmer was successful in being able to introduce hybrid corn to other farmers and so they they it, it seems like such a simple principle but it's very powerful so yes congregations teach other congregations way better than the bishop and and the bishop staff teach. Um, yeah, it, that's, that is the same principle. Um, on the other hand, uh, it's, it's absolutely true. And I've heard it voiced over and over again, uh, that congregations view each other as competitors. And, um, why is that? Well, I think, you know, the reason, um, in our weakness, we operate out of a sense of scarcity. So yeah. if, um, 
if we're really just competing for uh, the Episcopalians who just have moved into the Bay Area, uh, like that's the uh, that's the denominator that we're trying to divide up between us. Well, then it's a scarce product, <laughs> and then and we we're, we're going to have to get to them first, and um, you know tell them why we've got better childcare in our congregation and and a more beautiful liturgy. And uh, if we understand that God has created the beloved com- community. Uh, full of abundance and uh, that we have so much to learn from each other and to offer each other outside of the churches as well, uh, that every person who's coming into our community is, is uh, a cornucopia of riches. Um, not that we need to all enlist that person into five different activities <laughs> as, as we typically do um, in our churches. Uh, I think that's just the posture is different. We, we start to um, live out of abundance rather than scarcity. Yeah. You know, all these uh, practices seem to have, I like that cornucopia there. It's, there's like a pluriform sort of uh, sense in which you're thinking about them. And the last one I think is very much that way sustainability. Mm. Yeah. Um, I, I love that you used many, the word many, many notions by the it. way. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, presiding Bishop um, Griswold also used the word pluriform quite a lot, <laughs> which is funny to think about. Um, yeah. Well, sustainability for me is such a, a pluriform word um, <laughs> in the way that I use it day in, day out in the climate and environment work. It, it means one thing. Um, it means um, it means an ecosystem having enough enough health in it, let's say, that it can maintain itself and and um, and move into the future with some sense of integrity. Um, if you if you walk into a forest, um, the the whole web of life is present in that in a healthy ecosystem there the the top predators haven't haven't been removed and thus everything that flows from that small uh, seemingly very small parts of the ecosystem that we might consider insignificant but play a kind of pivotal role in the health of the ecosystem they haven't been removed and uh, the whole thing doesn't kind of teeter as a result of their removal, or you haven't reached a certain level of um, degradation that the whole system is starting to fall apart. Okay, so you know, the opposite of all, all that is sustainability. But um, that is a kind of view of nature as something uh, like an Ansel Adams photograph. There are never any pick people in those photographs. It's just this incredible landscape. And, and, it, and then we started to develop an idea from his photographs, from the writings of John Muir and others. Fabulous stuff, right? Yeah. But we started to make an assumption that nature is somehow pristine and apart from human life. One of the things that... Um, a revelatory article I read pointed out that some of the meadows, the the alpine meadows that were in uh, Ansel Adams' photographs were created by hundreds of years of uh, Native Americans burning uh, those uh, the the saplings that were starting to sprout in those uh, and grow in those areas. So they were wow. human influence. I know it's a wow, right? Mm, yeah, and yeah. Uh, but but he was very careful not to 
have any of those people in those photographs. So we we got an idea that uh, sustainability and nature was something out there and that urban life, suburban life, human life, civilization is something apart from that. And, and we've been talking about this for a long, long time. Um, how many urban children grow up really, you know, just milk is what comes in a carton. Uh, in fact, we are embedded in the uh, processes and the webs of all of life. So a sustainable church, just to get you know basic about it, is, um, is, a, is a church that is doing these practices, um, I think, and, and also um, is doing the spiritual practices that connect us to to God and to each other. And when we connect to each other, who are the others to whom we're connecting? Well, it's other people. It's the embeddedness idea. It's the, the community outside our doors. But it would also be the agricultural system in which we are located, right? So, so this area in which we are blessed to live is one of the epicenters, if not the epicenter of the whole local food movement. And um, the idea that, and this sounds like, you know, privileged white people talk, and, and so it has been. I mean, you know, the, the organic uh, food, the healthy food, the local food tends to be more expensive. And my friend Patrick Holden, who works with uh, sustainability in the UK, his grandmother said to him, Patrick, you're going to have to show people why the chicken that cost uh, 99 cents a pound that you get uh, that that's industrially produced mm -hmm. is um, why it's worth it to pay three dollars a pound. Why why is mm -hmm. that difference there? Um, so you know the the food deserts that um, urban um, lower income people oh, yeah. live in, and and many rural people as well. Um, the access to sustainability in a system that's affordable to them. So now we're talking about an economic system. So we're talking about an agricultural system, which is also dependent on wider ecological systems. We're talking about an economic system uh, that has fairness uh, built into it, not just profit margins. And we're talking about a church that is in all of that and, uh, and is aware enough uh, to, to want to talk about justice in the economic realm, uh, sustainability and justice in the eco realm. Um, you know, that, so that, that's the same as sustainability. <laughs> that was a lot, wasn't it? Thank you. Oh, that was great. Yeah. Thank you for taking us through those practices, Bishop Mark. So we happen to be talking during Easter week, um, as we continue to move through this season of resurrection and renewal, is there a word of hope or encouragement you'd like to leave our listeners with today? I, I have so much hope in what I am witnessing in the people of God uh, during this pandemic. Uh, and as we come out of it, uh, and you've both heard me say this, my gratitude for uh, the, could I put it, the good citizenship mm -hmm. of the people of the Diocese of California and of the Bay Area um, it almost knows no bounds. Uh, you have kept each other safe. You've kept yourself safe. You've kept your neighbors safe. The idea that um, 
we achieved over 80% vaccination levels and we wore our mask and we figured out how to worship together and how to do service and, and reaching out in our communities and keep our food pantries running and our 12-step programs were meeting virtually. I, this is hopeful. And we also learned uh, that there were people, quote, coming to church um, in the virtual platform who were not coming before. Yeah. And uh, so all of that, as we move into another stage, not not post pandemic, but change pandemic, that's very hopeful to me. It shows that the wells of creativity are there. Uh, I'm, I'm fully aware that people are exhausted, that it is exhausting, that more waves of creativity are going to be needed, but they're there. Uh, it, because the spirit is with us and moving among us, and I, I've witnessed it, so I'm I'm very hopeful about that. Yeah. Mm, thank you for that, and thank you for speaking with us today, Bishop Mark. What a gift! Yeah, and thank you for championing championing this vision of beloved community and of vital, thriving congregations. Oh, thank you. I'm I'm so grateful to both of you. Are we, are there some little lightning questions? Yes. So you, you've heard about the tradition. See, Claire, Bishop Mark, I've we, heard about we, have, the tradition. we have come to the lightning round, a tradition we just started last time on the Vital and Thriving Podcast. But now, now that we've done it twice, we can say that we have always done it this way with, with integrity. integrity. Yeah. With integrity. With integrity. Yeah. And confidence. All right. So Bishop Mark, you have, uh, well, I, I can't really make rules for my bishop, but I will just say, okay, we're, yeah, we're, sure you we're suggesting, we're suggesting 20 seconds or less to answer okay. each of these three questions. All right. Ready? So first, yeah. what is the best thing you ever ate at a church potluck? Go. Caramel cake. Oh, yeah. Yum. Okay. I need a moment to just. <laughs> do you know what caramel oh, cake I do. is? No, tell us. Tell us. Well, first, it's five layers, which means there's caramel icing between every layer and coating the whole thing. Oh, yeah. Mm. So, th there we go. Nice. Okay. All right. What is your very first memory of a worship service? Go. Um, burying my um, goldfish. Oh. <laughs> oh. Did you bury it or did someone help I you? I did. I did. Well, I had help. There was a whole mm -hmm. congregation and the, the little colored gravel that was in its um, little aquarium became a sort of pattern around the little gravesite, and there were flowers and there was a little hymn, prayers. Oh, wow. Nice. All right. And tell us the name of a <laughs> church leader or theologian who isn't a white male that you're listening to or learning from right now that we should mm -hmm. know more about? Go. Well, these are not church people. They are speculative fiction authors. Ooh. Um, Rebecca Roanhorse, uh, P. DeJelly Clark, N.K. Jemison, oh, yeah. and who else should I add? Marlon James. So these are all people of color, uh, indigenous, uh, black, uh, Jamaican, Caribbean, and they're writing speculative fiction, which takes me into where might we be headed uh, spiritually, um, ecologically, economically, and, um, and 
get me to think, what is this path we're on and and where is it leading us and and what might be some alternative paths yeah. to it? Yeah, like broadening your sympathetic imagination, right? Very much so. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. Well, thank you for being our guest today, Bishop Mark. We'll look forward to continuing this conversation outside of the podcast soon. Thank you so much. It's been a joy. Uh, Happy Easter to you both. Happy Easter. To you as well. So, Claire, what did you learn from Bishop Mark today? First, I really appreciated that he responded to the question about how much the church has changed by reminding us of just the timelessness of the work that we're always being invited into. I thought that was a wonderful reframe. And I also just appreciated the way he talked about beloved community and the movements of Jesus, similar to how Pat had talked about the spirit moving as like happening that we can just, we we can observe it. Uh, We don't have to make it happen. We, we notice it and we name it. Uh, That, that feels really liberating and and hopeful. Yeah. You know, I, uh, it's similarly, I I think that uh, at the very beginning, when he began talking about just uh, drawing us our attention back to Jesus and how Jesus, you know, engaged community. It, it reminds me of uh, something I've heard a few different times now. The presiding bishop, uh, uh, presiding bishop Michael Curry, uh, say that we're we're trying to, you know, when it comes to you know, is the Episcopal Church going to die or you know all these kind of scenarios of decline or demise? He says what we're what we're actually trying to become is a church that looks and acts like Jesus. And uh, I'm just so grateful that he kind yes. of, Bishop Mark, really cons- pretty consistently brought us there. Yeah, absolutely. This episode of the Vital and Thriving podcast was hosted by Claire Dietrich Rana and Scott Sherman. Our theme music is composed and performed by Jeremy Sherman as tribute to Django Reinhardt and the Hot Club of France. This podcast is part of Vital and Thriving Congregations, a joint initiative between Newbigin House of Studies and the Episcopal Church in the Bay Area, the Diocese of California. Visit vitalthriving.org for more information. Mm-hmm.